You are now entering the transit zone. Of course, those, those threats and intimidation has no place in Australia. We're a civil, peaceful society. Where we have disagreements, we don't handle them with violence. And there can be no tolerance for that. And there should be no tolerance for that. Um, no matter how frustrated people might be, that is never the answer. And uh, there needs to be uh, the respect shown uh, in those, those debates that we have. There has to be an appropriate balance and civility. Of course, there are many people who are feeling frustrated. I mean, over the last couple of years, governments have been telling Australians what to do. Now, there's been a need for that as we've gone through the pandemic. But the time is now to start rolling all of that back. Australians have get, kept their part of the deal. More than 80% of Australians are now double-dose vaccinated. We now have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. We've had one of the strongest economies to come through the pandemic. And we have one of the lowest fatality rates from COVID in the world. Australians have done an amazing job when it comes to leading us through this pandemic. But now it's time for governments to step back and for Australians to take their lives back and for Australians to be able to move forward with the freedoms that should be theirs. That's certainly what we're doing as a federal government. That's where we see it going. Um, our position on mandatory vaccines, for example, is in very specific circumstances. We're not in favour of mandatory vaccines imposed by the government. Businesses can make their own choices under the law, but we're not about telling them what to do or telling Australians what to do. Vaccines only are mandatory in cases where you've got health workers that are working with vulnerable people. That's what our medical advice has always been. And uh, as we get above 80% in particular, which the scientific advice shows us and the research shows us, that means Australians can have their lives back. They should be able to go to a copy, go and get a cup of coffee in Brisbane when you're over 80%, regardless of whether you've had the vaccines or not. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. Well, as I guess most of us already know, we have a federal election looming in Australia. Sometime in May 2022 seems the most likely date. But the phony war phase of that approaching campaign is already upon us. Prime Minister Scott Morrison is trying out some potential lines and slogans, such as can-do capitalism in relation to climate change, and, of course, seeking to find a wedge point against Labor wherever he can conjure one up. Labor have markedly increased the intensity and the tempo of their responses and critiques in the federal parliament and via the media, labelling Morrison a consistent, untrustworthy liar and accusing him of doublespeak, especially around his recent response to right-wing protests against COVID vaccination mandates in Victoria and elsewhere, are central themes of their attacks. For his part, the PM recently avowed on Victorian radio that he believed he had never lied publicly. And he's increasingly calling opposition leader Albanese sneaky offence as defence. If you often wonder who Scott Morrison actually is, what he definitively stands for, are perhaps befuddled, confused, even disturbed by his hallmark shape-shifting rhetoric, you are not alone. Journalist Annika Smethurst, over the last few months, had her biography of Morrison published. Its title, The Accidental Prime Minister, spruiked by her publisher as the definitive biography of Australia's 30th Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Quoting Smethurst, the promotional blurb goes, Critics have repeatedly underestimated Morrison's political skill and overplayed the impact of his missteps. But Morrison seems to understand, more than most, what gets through to mainstream Australians and what they ignore. Hitting the non-fiction book market in the same time frame, a very different form of writing through a contrasting lens about Australia's Prime Minister. The Game, a portrait of Scott Morrison by Sean Kelly. Sean was a political advisor to former Labor Prime Ministers Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. He's a columnist and op-ed writer for Channel 9 Mastheads, The Guardian, and for the Black Ink stable of writing and journalism, including The Monthly. Black Ink have published The Game. Sean Kelly, welcome to The Transit Zone. 
Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, look, Sean, we have plenty to explore around the content, the methodology and the style of your book. But let's start with current events. We heard at the top of this podcast Scott Morrison doing what some critics describe as Trumpian, seeming to condemn the actions of anti-Labour Premier Dan Andrews' protesters in Victoria, but simultaneously expressing a kind of sympathy for and understanding of their frustration, talking about freedom and the government getting out of people's lives. Now, perhaps this is the doublespeak Labour and other critics of Morrison have slammed. That brief passage, to my way of thinking, is almost a mini case study in the Morrison technique. How do you see this latest and very recent use of rhetoric by the PM within the larger thesis of your book about his approach to public communications? I think one of the first things to note is, is in some ways it's actually quite an, an old approach. It's not dissimilar to the way that John Howard approached One Nation back in 1998 uh, when One Nation was still on the rise. Uh, they were heading into the Queensland election. There was a federal election following very soon after. And Howard's initial approach was essentially not to challenge Hanson too strongly, not to attack her too strongly. Indeed, played footsies with One Nation for a little while in terms of preferences. To me, Morrison's response to the threats of violence in that protest really echoed Howard's approach to Hanson, i.e. here are a group of voters who have pretty awful views. In, in Hanson's case, who are really dabbling in some pretty terrible areas, but in the interest of not pushing those voters away, the Prime Minister is also, in effect, willing to uh, turn a blind eye of sorts to, to some pretty awful some pretty awful views. I think the, the other thing that, it, that, it strike, that strikes me about it is it's not entirely about Morrison. It's more about the way that politics has become performance. I write about this in the book. There was a sense in the, in the late 60s when TV began to dominate politics for the first time that politics was shifting. It was shifting away from substance. And uh, there's a book written at the time about Richard Nixon's presidential campaign and Roger Ailes would go on to head up Fox News before it being removed because there was a, a barrel full of sexual harassment allegations against him. Said at the time, and this was it's very true, I think, that politicians will be performers forever after. And over the years, politicians have become more and more skilled at that. And I think we've all become much more accepting of the idea of politicians as performers. And what that means is that in a situation, as we saw last Thursday, when a prime minister is questioned about something, about violent threats against politicians, he issues a statement. Uh, and it's, it's a very, it's a pro forma statement. It's not delivered with a great deal of passion. The words aren't particularly striking. And then... He spends the bulk of his statement talking about the frustrations that people are feeling. And I think that our notion of politics as performance means that we can now effectively read the first bit of his statement as performance. And the people who would support him and the people who are in sympathy with those with the violent threats are very easily able to look through the first bit of Scott Morrison's statement, thinking to themselves, well, that's just performance. Of course, he has to do that. And Scott Morrison knows that. You know, he's... He's, uh, he's a bright enough bloke. Uh, he knows exactly what's going on there. And, and Anthony Albanese has pointed this out, but it's a good point. Scott Morrison on his Facebook wall used that answer, but he didn't use the first bit of it. He used the last 300 words that are all about freedom and sympathies and people taking back their lives and edited out the first 80 words where he's actually saying something reasonable about disapproving of, of violent threats. I wanted to delve into this idea of the performative and performance during our conversation, but let's latch on to some of it straight away. It strikes me that reading your book and just thinking back through my own lifetime, that we get to know politicians mainly through speech, that literacy oracy split. We're so used to having things written down for us, but politicians on the whole particularly these days, but earlier, we know them through their speech, through their oratory of whatever standard that oratory is. And I'm taken, because I'm perhaps I'm an old radio guy and I listen very carefully to my interviewees when they're often not in the studio with me, listening to their voice, that Morrison has something that he does vocally as well. In that grab we just heard, there's a little tone, a little catch in his voice that he uses quite consistently when he's doing certain things orally. Have you picked up on that? 
No, no, tell me more about it. He gets that slightly higher note in his voice and he sort of grates his voice a little bit. It's a, it's a very consistent pattern of using his voice. I guess that goes back to this performance stuff. When he gets into the point he wants to make, is that what you mean? The way I read some of it is, anyway, Sean, that when he's trying to convey a certain sort of sincerity, it's particularly part of the first 80 words before he moves on to the, I understand there. Ah, uh, interesting. Scott Morrison is, he is a performer. And, and some of that, I suspect, comes from a, an early attraction to, to theatre and, and his family spent quite a bit of time in, in amateur theatre. It was a way that they came together as a family. Uh, so I think that was probably in him early to some extent. And I think, I think it was absolutely there in what he learned from his time in tourism and, and in advertising. I think that Scott Morrison understands performance better than most politicians. And... The thing that he understands about political performance better than most politicians is that you have to believe what you're performing. You have to perform something that is on some level true. Now, uh, we we can come to this issue of belief a a bit later, but what I, I think that means is that when he modulates his voice, he's often very convincing because I I don't think um, he's in a way a bit like a, like a sports star who is so praxis at something, who has hit a tennis ball two million times so that they no longer have to think about it. Scott Morrison can modulate his voice and not sound fake about it because he is practiced at it, because he is very, very good at it. Whereas many politicians, when they act, and you know, they're all acting to some extent, some of the time, when they act, they're not actually very good at it. Uh, you know, and you, you saw that in the last election cycle when you were watching Bill Shorten deliver this grab and that grab and appear in television ads and it was very obvious he was acting but he wasn't a very good actor that was the problem Scott Morrison's a very good actor Sean I've tried as a personal project to codify Scott Morrison's pattern approach to propaganda to his rhetoric being interviewed by journalists or responding to media conferences into the 60s this is my tendency to like to codify things deny deflect distract distort divide denounce Underdenounce, including, mm. and often under pressure, the journalist interviewer, as well as political opponents such as Albanese. Mm. And I've gone back in time, way back before he was Prime Minister, listening to various interviews. And, for example, if a Sabra Lane puts him under a bit of pressure, he attacks her and the ABC as a mm. reflexive response. It strikes me that, in many ways, Morrison, in a conventional journalistic sense, is uninterviewable. His muscular skills of avoidance, messaging and attack render almost every exchange that I've watched something of a hollow exercise. Do you agree with that? Is he interviewable in a conventional sense? Okay, I do agree with you. And and others have made this point over time. There was a very good article a few years ago by Craig Matheson, who's a TV critic, about the way in which Scott Morrison made it very difficult to interview him substantively. I think it is worth saying, and and this is this is a point I make in my book that Scott Morrison is not uh, a unique figure. You know, he hasn't come out of nowhere. He is a product of the zeitgeist. He's a product of his context, and that is a context in which, as I was saying, politics has become performance. So he is uninterviewable in a sense, but so are most politicians to some extent. And, and what we really see over time, I think, is that you, you've had a perfection a slow perfection of politics as a craft. And one of the crafts of politics has been dealing with interviews. And increasingly, what that has meant is imparting less and less information. And so Scott Morrison isn't uh, the only politician trying to do this. He just happens to be the peak of it, the best at it. But the point that needs to accompany that, I think, is that as politicians have become better and better and better at evading interviewing techniques, Interviewers have, by and large, not kept up. I think interviewing, television interviewing in particular, is often stuck in an old mode. I don't think that's always true. I think there are some very good interviewers in Australia. Some strong points are made and sometimes, you know, sometimes some strong points can be made by not getting answers. Uh, You don't have to get an answer to a question to reveal something important to the viewer. Uh, and the very best interviewers can do that. But absolutely, Peter, you're right that Scott Morrison makes it very, very difficult. And I do think that means that journalists have to change their approach. I think something very interesting has happened in the last three or four weeks. 
since the Macron incident, effectively, I think that journalists have become much more sceptical. I think something has switched. In general, journalists will offer some level of deference to politicians, and that's understandable. You don't want to begin by calling a politician a liar, begin by suggesting that everything a politician does is driven by cynicism. That makes sense. The way any of us meet somebody new, we don't want to cast judgment immediately. But over time, a politician reveals habits. And I think what's really been interesting to watch over the last three or four weeks is that journalists have come to a decision, it seems almost by osmosis, that Scott Morrison is behaving, is responding to their questions in certain ways. And so to get to grips with that, to actually serve the public, they need to approach him in a different way. And that means not showing him the deference that politicians are often shown. And that's very interesting in terms of Scott Morrison, because I think it's making his life much harder right now. But it's also interesting, I think, in terms of what uh, happens in our politics from here on in, because as they begin to treat Scott Morrison with less deference, they will feel as though they have to treat others, including Albanese, with less deference to be reasonable and fair. And from there, that, that might spread. You might begin to see journalists treating politicians differently. Now, that's uh, perhaps overly optimistic of me, but, I, but these things always happen slowly. Something has certainly started to happen. I want to circle back to that, particularly this perhaps growing shift in the narrative of Morrison as a lie. But let's come back to that later in our conversation as we talk about the coming election. In your book, you cite the profile of Morrison by Jane Cudrow in 2015 as almost something of a scientific bench test, if you like, to better understand what followed. The purposeful creation of the daggy suburban dad persona and image. Before that, Morrison was notoriously a blank slate, a blank canvas, deeply averse to scrutiny. He still is, of course, deeply averse to scrutiny, but has, in your analysis, fostered via the media journalism storytellers a version of himself. Is that version a fake version, wholly confected, partially authentic? How do we see that version? Look, it's a complicated question. Certainly, he, he was this blank slate up until about 2015. And in 2015 you began to get the first glimmer of a sense that Scott Morrison might become Prime Minister. And he obviously knew that. And I remember that year in a column I wrote suggesting that Malcolm Turnbull would be next in line after Tony Abbott. And I had a a Labour friend uh, who was still working in politics contact me and say, no, mate, you're you're wrong. Scott Morrison's the next in line now. So this was 2015. Of course, he was wrong. uh, And Turnbull stepped up to the plate. But the point is that that was the first year when, when Morrison was a real chance. And that was the year that he started to construct this persona. And we heard about him cooking curries, and he'd cook curries once a week. So he was modern, but not too modern. And he began to tweet again about the sharks after an absence from social media of 18 months. And both of these elements were new. Neither of them are, were deeply important to who Scott Morrison was as a person. He wasn't a rugby league fan from way back. The curry cooking was fairly recent. So they were, they were attempts to project a certain image, very deliberate attempts. And then in 2017, he gives a speech to the Liberal Party and accompanies it with an interview and he says, what people want to know about you, how you can prove to people that you are authentic, tell them what you what you cook, tell them what you think about the footy. And of course, that's exactly what he's been doing and it's what he begins to do even more so when he becomes Prime Minister. So it is it is absolutely confected and the, the specific elements of it carries rugby league are on some level fake but I think the sensibility that he's trying to communicate there of a pretty ordinary suburban bloke white middle-aged man who lives in the Shire probably pretty accurate so he is exaggerating everything he's exaggerating everything in in a very determined attempt to make sure that every member of the Australian public gets the message that he's an ordinary bloke but it doesn't mean that he's he's not an ordinary bloke either so look, it is complex. And, and then I think you have another element to this, which is that I don't think anyone can maintain a role of any sort in public life for a really long time without that beginning to crowd out your private self, without that beginning to become who you are. So look, whether Scott Morrison started out as ScoMo or whether, whether ScoMo slowly took over Scott Morrison, not entirely clear. In an odd way, ScoMo, while a confected creation, is not entirely insincere. I'm really intrigued by your description of Morrison as a flat character. I 
almost took that initially, Sean, as meaning he creates a persona, a screen, if you like, onto which busy citizens largely disengaged from the minutiae of politics can project their own hopes, desires and identities. But on further reading, I think you're making a slightly more complicated point about Morrison, aren't you, Sean, as this flat character? Essentially, I think all, anyone we see in public life, celebrities uh, of any sort, are characters of sorts. What I mean by that is, what do we know of a character in a book? We know what the novelist chooses to tell us. What do we know about a character in a TV show? What do we know about Tony Soprano? Uh, we know what the TV writers have, to- have chosen to told us. And similarly, uh, what do we know about politicians? Well, we know what the writers of politics choose to tell us. We know what the journalists choose to tell us through TV bulletins, radio bulletins, and, uh, and articles in the papers. And so we, we only ever get a very partial picture of them. So I began to think about characters. And the, the novelist Ian Forster, almost 100 years ago, gave a lecture and described flat characters and round characters as the two types of characters in fiction. And round characters, Peter, were, were real people. They were like uh, you and me, or they were like somebody you know. So you know them in their nuance. They might surprise you at times. Uh, they have eccentricities. They have strange opinions. A flat character was uh, was a character, was a cartoon, really. It was somebody who has a distinctive visual characteristic, who has a catchphrase, perhaps, who can be described very, very simplistically. And I think Scott Morrison's genius, politically, uh, though he would certainly never describe it this way, was to recognise that the flat character works very, very well in politics because journalists only have a certain number of words to communicate things to us. Uh, we only have limited attention spans. Most people are not paying that much attention to politics. So present a flat character, present a readily recognisable caricature. And that was what ScoMo was. You know, what do we know about him? We knew he had a couple of catchphrases, things like, how good is Australia? We knew he wore a baseball cap. Uh, we knew he liked footy and he cooked a curry. That was that was it. That was all we really needed to know about him going into the 2019 election because that gave us a caricature. That gave us a type that we knew uh, without having to know anything real about him. And I think that that's it's tremendously soothing in certain ways to have a flat character because we don't have to think too hard about him. And I think that means we don't have to think too hard about politics. And I think most of us don't like to think too hard about politics. On the other side of that ledger, though, we do see a lot of him being Scott Morrison, Prime Minister, under pressure from journalists to some degree, but not an awful lot of pressure, I must say. His more aggressive side, his more dominating side, his peevish side. We see all that of him as well, don't we? Well, yes. The flat character was a brilliant invention to get him through the 2019 election. You know, he had a short span of time in which to make himself known to the Australian public uh, after many, many, many years in which he made sure that there was nothing to grasp hold of. Uh, So the flat character was simple enough and convincing enough to get him through the nine months between the time he became Prime Minister and the time he faced the the voters. But since then, as you you point out, he's been under an enormous spotlight. Uh, he is the Prime Minister. Not only that, he's been the Prime Minister at a time when there has been an incredible focus on the Prime Minister because of COVID. And so I think that anyone with attention focused on them for that long can't hide behind an image. The real person is going to start poking out at times. So I think that is the real challenge for Scott Morrison now. And in some ways, in the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is him trying to replace the ScoMo character or perhaps embellish the ScoMo character with this new character, ScoMo the Freedom Warrior. You know, we had ScoMo the Daggy Dad, now we have ScoMo the Freedom Warrior, who, who shakes hands, who drives trucks and cooks gnocchi and cooks spring rolls and gets haircuts. And it's all about freedom and it's all about getting governments out of our, out of our faces and out of our lives. But again, it's really the same technique we're seeing. It is a, it is a character held together by a set of images. That's it. That's really all there is. And you are absolutely right. The difficulty for Scott Morrison now is that we are beginning to see these other elements of him. And that that does a couple of things. Firstly, it puts focus on those other elements. And when some of those elements are things like peevishness and things like becoming aggressive under pressure, then that's quite damaging. And the second thing, related but separate, is that it makes us more sceptical of the character. If we 
can see that there's this other real Scott Morrison, uh, then suddenly this performance of the character all the time starts to grate a little. Because we think, well, what are you trying to do? You're trying to have us on? Uh, and I think that is that is really a great concern or should be a great concern to Morrison. You mentioned Freedom Warrior. Sean, who do you believe really expropriated and coined freedom as a propaganda weapon? Was it Gladys Berejiklian, former New South Wales Premier, as part of her propaganda around COVID? Or was it Scott Morrison? He slipstreamed a lot, did the whole gold standard thing. Uh, around COVID in New South Wales. But now, of course, he is using that freedom. I mentioned in passing that journalism, the media, breathed that linguistics right in. And, of course, it's in every headline. It's used just reflexively now as shorthand for other words we could use, like easing of restrictions. But now we talk about freedom. So that's worked a treat as propaganda, I must say. Did he follow her or was it a a joint effort? What do you think? I'm not sure I have a very clear answer to this, but... I would probably be sceptical of the idea that it was an Australian invention. My feeling about media these days is that it's incredibly porous. Things come to us from international news very, very easily. So an example of this is is the kerfuffle around AstraZeneca. You know, so certainly Scott Morrison made uh, made some pretty significant mistakes and, and uh, various other political players tried to play politics with it. And I think there were there were huge problems here. But really, the doubt about AstraZeneca started overseas. Sometimes it's described as an Australian problem, but we saw similar scepticism overseas. And I think one of the difficulties is that um, these ideas come to us and they come to us pretty unfiltered and people can pick and choose their ideas from anywhere. So freedom, I mean, we have to remember that when Boris Johnson declared that things were going to open up, it was called Freedom Day. So I think that idea of freedom has been been filtering uh, around the world. I think that means that we have to be very alert to the way that these concepts are used overseas uh, and the way they're often lazily adopted here. You can see many examples of this and it's not entirely a new thing. Political correctness came from elsewhere. More recently we've had cancel culture but I think it's it's much more of a factor now than it was. I should say the phrase cancer culture. I'm, I'm talking about not cancer culture itself. You point out in the book and elsewhere that Morrison never seems to actually apologise as such, but he does come up with some crafted narrow formulations that, well, they seem like saying sorry, such as for being insensitive as an observer of events. You give examples like the Christmas Island funerals, the bank inquiry, etc., What finally prompts Morrison, in your view, to make the shift to doing that faux apology? And how do they actually work for people, do you think? Those apologies or the the appearance, the performance of an apology? This is an interesting issue in Morrison's political career because I I think he does understand the need to express regret at times. And he has apologised a few times for this and that. But I think he's caught between two things. I think he's caught between a personal deeper version to accepting blame. I don't think this is just a political, cynical political tactic. I think he genuinely hates being held accountable for things. I think he really fears being blamed. So that's why you often see his apologies slightly sidestep a real apology with language or very often roping other people in. So when he he finally apologised for uh, aged care deaths in Victoria, you know, he said something like, I'm sure everybody involved in the system is deeply sorry. He does that a lot. It's roping in other people so that he doesn't have to shoulder it alone. But he does understand the need to apologise in order to put something behind him sometimes. And he knows that he can use qualified apologies uh, and that they will be reported as apologies by sufficient portions of the media to allow him to move on, to act as an apology even if it wasn't really one. And in some senses, I think the comments he made about the threats of violence last week were were an example of this. It wasn't an apology, but it's a similar thing in that he thought he could utter these words, these fairly empty words that he followed up with, with other words which were more important to him politically, and that those empty words would be enough, that they would largely be accepted. And, And this comes back to what we were talking about before in terms of the lack of deference journalists are showing him, he wasn't let off the hook this time. 
the meaning of those words weren't allowed to spread and to seep into the culture. Instead, people said, hang on, these words don't mean something if you're going to go up, go on and, and effectively contradict them in the same breath. So there's a lot of moving parts, I think, when you talk about Scott Morrison and apologies. Now, one clear example of Morrison's techniques, I guess his propaganda technique, his rhetoric technique, is his volubility, never leaving a gap. It's almost like a, a one-way channel, whether it's in Parliament, being interviewed or in a media conference. There often seems to be, to my mind anyway, Sean, a link between the pressure he's under or perceived pressure he's under and the increased flow of his words, often bordering on garbled and he starts to muck up his words even. I remember, you might remember too, a strange media conference at Kirribilli House when he was addressing an aged care report that he just popped out with very short notice to journalists and an ABC journalist who was full bottle on aged care repeatedly pressed him. He resorted to attacking and dismissing her, yes, peevishly, and aggressively, his resentment to being questioned was then on full display. He was very open about his aggression. How do you analyse that aspect of the Prime Minister, his aversity to being questioned at all? I think that's a long-standing attribute of his. Is that his innate authoritarianism at work, or is there perhaps, we're going to be amateur psychologists here, is there an underlying insecurity as well, do you believe? I think it comes from Scott Morrison's understanding, again, much greater than the understanding of most politicians, of the incredible power of the media. So we come back to this idea of Scott Morrison as a, as a character, as a flat character. He knew that he needed journalists to tell that story for him, to create this flat character for him. And that's really what he did. And, and in the earlier phase of his career, when he refused to answer questions, that was that seems different. Right? In the first phase, he, he's keeping information from the media and in the second phase he's giving them information that he wants them to have about him cooking curries and so forth but really both of them are aspects of the same understanding which is that the media will tell his story and so he needs to find a way to control the media the really important fact about scott morrison's success is that largely he has achieved that largely he has found a myriad ways to get the media to do his bidding but what happens in those moments when the media begin to question him, that all begins to break down. And I think he is deeply threatened because his, his entire political persona is in effect under threat at those times. Because in some ways, the ScoMo character is a pretty thin veneer. So if people start to poke at that, then it could break down very quickly in, in some ways, as we've seen in the last few weeks. And so I think he's always alert to that. And I think that probably does come from from another personal part of, of Scott Morrison, which is that he is deeply private, I think. And so when people are really challenging him, him, I think part of his response is a desire to protect himself, protect himself from any deep scrutiny. And so I, I think that that reaction against journalists comes from a, a couple of different wells. One is, one is that he's being politically threatened, and one is the feeling of personal threat. Now, you touched on this earlier. I just want to delve into this a little more deeply now. You write about Morrison's ability to almost, I think, live in the moment, to believe what he's saying in that moment is true. And that brings a certain sense of conviction to that process, doesn't it? That he doesn't actually lie as such. How did you come to that view and what's your evidence for that? Uh, look, uh, of course, these, these things are, are always a matter of putting pieces together because Scott Morrison, as he has said himself, um, doesn't really like to talk about himself. He thinks voters don't want him to conduct himself as though he's on Oprah's couch. So you have to put these pieces together. One story that former Senator Nick Xenophon told the journalist Catherine Murphy is, is of Xenophon having worked with Morrison on, on some legislation. And then a while later, Xenophon runs into Morrison when Parliament's been sitting. And he says to Morrison, oh, we should, we should grab a coffee. Let's grab a coffee. And Morrison says, why? And Xenophon says, well, let's, let's discuss this piece of policy and this piece of legislation. You know, I thought we got on well before. And Morrison laughs and says, no, Matt, I'm purely transactional. And, you know, most of us, most of us, when we're nice to somebody, we feel the need to be nice to them again and then nice to them again. And look, we, we've all been cold to, to people we've been friendly with at some point, but, but mostly we try to maintain a similar approach to people. And we do that because we see that Every moment is connected to the next, that time is this continuous flow. I think for Scott Morrison, there's this real sense of every moment being separate. And another thing he said to Catherine Murphy was that he has a flow brain. 
not everybody will know what that is. It's it's a psychological term that then entered the kind of you know business self help book type world, TED talks and whatnot. Uh, but essentially, it's the ability to enter into a moment, to shut out everything else, and to focus entirely on the task that is in front of you. You don't think; you're just doing. And I, I think that is part of the puzzle as well. That Scott Morrison is just in the moment. And I think then finally you see that in his speech and in the way that he says, I never said that when he said it 17 times before. This ability to say that he hasn't done things, he's clearly done. And I think that he really believes that. I spoke to somebody who worked with him very early in his career and this person said to me, the thing about Scott is he can convince himself of things aggressively. And so I really do think that Morrison believes in each moment that he is telling the truth. Now, he is saying whatever needs to be said politically, but when he says it, he believes it. And this comes back to what I was saying right at the start of this discussion about uh, him being a very good actor. You know, it's method acting in a sense. He really inhabits that character and he really believes what he's saying. There's no doubt in his mind as he speaks. Well, that partly answers my next question. I want to know, as a, an observer and as a journalist, how has Morrison pulled off the trick, can we call it the trick, of denying the past record of his own words, his own actions, his own propaganda, despite the fact that we now live in a media environment where that record, that idea of on the record, is fully available to be adduced to his face. And that happens sometimes. Is this an example, in your view, Sean, of the so-called Trumpesque post-truth era that Morrison may be exploiting to the hilt. He just, what, shrugs off the falsehoods as simply a passing bump in the road. Past, present, future conflated. Is that his trick? You talk about him believing in the moment, but objectively, there are lots of lies involved. How does he do that? You have to distinguish between two separate factors here. One is the person, the personality, and various people pull off this type of trick, but it doesn't mean they're the same sort of person. So Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison share various political traits. I reckon that Boris Johnson knows when he's telling a lie and often kind of, you know, effectively wink at people while he's doing that. I I think there's a lot of self-awareness there, uh, whereas I think Scott Morrison, as I say, genuinely believes it. So there are different types of personalities who do things in different ways. And Boris Johnson almost seems to thrill in his ability to to deny, you know, to, to say black is white and enjoys the mischief making of it, if you like, and, and believes that people love him for that and, and will continue to love him for that. And so far, you know, he's been right. And then there's a second aspect, which is the context of the particular media landscape we live in right now. And that is a media landscape in which, as you say, people can be held to account. But the onslaught of information we all face means that holding people to account just doesn't mean as much as it once did. It's just an overflow of information, really. It's very hard to make things stick. But you, you can get to a point when enough people agree on something, agree on their analysis of a politician's character, that that starts to become a problem. So, you know, this, this was a problem for Trump towards the end of his presidency, and it's a problem for Morrison now. It's not so much that any one of his lies or shifts is enough to bring him down. It's not that millions of Australians particularly care that he was against electric vehicles and is now for electric vehicles. It starts to add up to a broader character problem, which then leads to a scepticism. And if you are somebody who is relying on making some pretty outlandish claims to bring down your opponent, and that's what politicians often do, then you need to have some base level of authority to get people to listen to those outlandish claims. And when that authority starts to crumble, then you're in real trouble. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark, and our guest is Sean Kelly, author of The Game, a portrait of Scott Morrison.
You've probably seen this. Richard Dennis of the Australia Institute has written an interesting essay for the monthly charting the twists and turns in the Scott Morrison government's failures and its debacles around managing the COVID pandemic, especially in regard to vaccination, but also quarantine, and the accompanying lies, backflips, misinformation, propaganda from front of the queue onwards. Now, Australia, at least in New South Wales and Victoria, is shaping to be one of the most highly vaccinated countries in the world. If you look away from the gross failures in Indigenous communities, will popular mass amnesia once again erase any lingering memories of how truly poorly Scott Morrison has performed during this pandemic and how partisan has been his federal leadership? Mass amnesia fascinates me. Will it work for him again? I think very possibly. I, I definitely don't want to say that it will, but I think it, I think it's very possible. Essentially, coming out of the pandemic, I think you had two paths open to this country, as as there were two paths open to most countries, which were firstly, do you see what the pandemic has shown you? Do you remember the problems it has unveiled in society, the uh, inequalities, the cuts to public health, the uh, problems in housing, the problems with insecure work, the things that enable the virus to spread in some areas and not in other areas. Do you address those problems because they're being unmasked so thoroughly? Or do you simply get so exhausted and so sick of the virus that you just decide to bury that whole incident, put it behind you and, and move on into the future? And feels a lot as though Australia is closer to that second model now. It feels a lot as though much of the world is. And, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the first time. Various people have noted the way that the Spanish flu is almost absent in literature from the time. You know, people didn't want to revisit it. They didn't want to write about it. I think that there is absolutely a possibility of mass amnesia because Scott Morrison will offer people a version of what he offered them at the last election, which is the idea that nothing needs to change, that there's been enough change then. Uh, we, we would like to get back to normal. In 2019, that was following Prime Minister after Prime Minister after Prime Minister after Prime Minister, and essentially he was saying, let's stop changing Prime Ministers. I'm not going to usher in any big changes. Let's just carry on as we are. And this election is offering the same thing with a small twist. It's, let's go back to the way things were. Uh, and I think that's a very soothing message. Is that going to be another version of snapback? Remember snapback early on mm. in 2020? Are we getting a, re, a re-gilded version of snapback, are we? Yeah, absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. Snapback was things will soon go back to normal. Scott Morrison, at various points in the pandemic, has, has effectively offered snapback up, uh, effectively said things will soon go back to normal. Now he's been wrong and he's been wrong and he's been wrong again. But, you know, broken clocks, you know, right twice a day. And eventually Scott Morrison will be right. And he's very much hoping that it'll be right going into the 2022 election. Within the frame of the coming election, I want to ask you this. One aspect of Morrison's aligning so strongly with former Premier Gladys Berejiklian's freedom rhetoric and that New South Wales gold standard pandemic propaganda has been his very blatant and intensely partisan attacks on Labor premiers, Dan Andrews in Victoria, Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland, and of course Mark McGowan in Western Australia around borders and lockdowns while almost ignoring and looking the other way with Stephen Marshall, a Liberal Premier in South Australia, with similar zero-tolerance lockdown policies, or Peter Goodwine in Tasmania. Very blatant. And I was in South Australia during one of their lockdowns, and boy, that was tough. It was very full-on in South Australia. How do you analyse that, Sean? What are the advantages politically for Morrison in being so blatantly partisan federally as a federal leader? What are the threats to him in doing that with the coming election? Look, I, I don't think the threats to him on that front are that great, to be honest, because, you know, I heard Anthony Albanese on the radio this morning trying to make this point about Scott Morrison never criticising New South Wales, even while he's criticising Queensland for the same things. But it's framed in terms of Morrison attacking Labor premiers where he won't attack Liberal premiers. And the attack on that sounds just as partisan as the initial uh, action. So I, I think unless you are already uh, a very firm Labor voter, I, I'm not sure that people will care very much, to be honest. I'm not in Victoria right now. I'm, I'm in Sydney, so I don't know. Perhaps perhaps there is a, you know, a patriotic sense of Victorians as, as Victorians and attacked by the federal government. Perhaps there's a, a sense of that 
in Queensland, but I suspect it falls more along party lines than anything else. Yet in the history of the Federation, I wonder if you agree, the state premiers have probably never been more powerful. Morrison, despite his bluster, effectively ceded an enormous amount of power to them, the premiers, managing the pandemic by abdicating federal leadership, failing to create, for example, an overarching framework around mm. vaccination mandates. That's one clear area. Remember SPC as the corporate pathfinder? So states, corporations like SPC, institutions like the University of Melbourne and other universities, and small businesses, we're seeing that everywhere now, had to forge their own policies. So he has actually, despite everything we've been saying about him, he has ceded an awful lot of power within the Federation, hasn't he? Mm. Oh, absolutely. And that's fascinating in terms of what happens for the Federation over the next 10 years, whether, you know, to get back to our snapback theme, whether things do just snap back to the way they were with uh, premiers having far less power, whether this is just a COVID anomaly or whether a new pattern has been set. That's the first question. Then the second question is political. And so there is one way in which this partisanship of Morrison's might affect the federal election. And that is in the fact that generally voters prefer their premiers and their prime minister to come from different parties. So if you have a Liberal premier, you are more likely as a state to want a Labor prime minister and vice versa. Australians seem to have a tendency to want their their state government and their federal government to balance each other. I think the question about COVID is whether that will shift at this election. I think it is possible that uh, because premiers have been so prominent that, uh, that that might flip a bit and a state with a Liberal Premier might actually want a Liberal Prime Minister and a state with a Labor Premier might actually want a Labor Prime Minister. And that that will be very interesting. If, if that is the way that things roll out, then, uh, you know, Queensland and New South Wales and WA uh, potentially, um, you know, they become very interesting electoral battlegrounds. Now, Sean, as a writer, you've written about how you approach this book. You wrote a profile for the monthly back in 2018, which prefigured the game. It certainly isn't this book conventional biography. You have said your approach veered closer to literary criticism than to political journalism. Now, there are passages in the book which are clearly quite orthodox political journalism. You've got sources, you analyse particular political events via sources, but then you also do something approaching textual analysis of, of individual players, like Turnbull when he was losing the prime ministership. What do you mean by literary criticism versus political journalism yourself as you analyse your methodology here? I mean two things. Partly it is this attention to politicians as as characters they have created and partly it is deep attention to the language that politicians use. If we accept that politics has become a performance, a sustained performance to a very large degree, then I think we have to... uh, pay attention to politicians as performers. You know, I think we can make a mistake sometimes of looking for the real person, of, of going uh, of going on some quest to find the, the hidden uh, person, the hidden Scott Morrison, say. It can be illuminating in certain ways, but I think sometimes it can distract us from seeing what is right in front of us. And what is right in front of us is a politician's words, their public words, and their public actions. And I think we can learn a lot uh, by analysing those words and actions as performance. Uh, and Scott Morrison in particular, uh, I, I think this, this approach lends itself to Scott Morrison in particular because he's such a consummate performer. You know, ideally ideally, a book's form will, will follow its content, will follow its subject. And I, I think uh, the beauty of Scott Morrison is that he, he lends himself to literary analysis almost more than political analysis a lot of the time because he's such a a literary creation. I'm very interested in your framing. And in the final chapter, you are quite self-critical, and I want to ask you about that a little later. But you worked, as we know, for two Labor prime ministers, Rudd and Gillard, right in the belly of the beast, being a press secretary. You saw up close and took part in the process of how they projected their personas and their narratives, the links and disconnects between truth and deception. How and in what ways did those experiences shape and modulate your framings, your decisions when writing this, your first book, Sean? Oh, to, to a very great extent. I, you know, when I was saying before that the, the form of a book should match the, the subject of that book, uh, in a way the, the writer of that book, I suppose, should, should match those two other elements. And I'm, I, I think in a way I got very lucky in 
finding the subject of Scott Morrison because, uh, you know, I'm a former spin doctor, I'm a former press secretary, and Scott Morrison is, is nothing if not a spin doctor. Uh, and so I know how a lot of these tricks work. Now, I'm not, uh, you know, I was never as skilled at them as, as Scott Morrison is, for, for better or worse, uh, but I have some sense of how they operate. And so part of what I try to do in this book is to... Uh, is to bring people beyond that surface level. Because one of the things that I think is really interesting about this moment in political history is that we all think of ourselves as incredibly savvy. Uh, you know, we all think of ourselves as, as entirely switched on to what the media are up to, to what politicians are up to. But we still fall for these tricks. You know, a, a lot of the time, I think most people do take the ScoMo character at face value. Uh, even though they would they would think of themselves as very savvy consumers uh, of politics and media, uh, so you know, as, as somebody who has practiced some of those those tricks, uh, I thought it was important to try to to explain how they can work. That fits in very nicely with my next question. I just mentioned the final chapter of the game. You go a bit Brechtian in the final chapter. It sort of exposed the process, <laughs> exposed the process a little bit. You're quite self-critical, and which I found very useful as a reader, I must say, and critical of us as citizens collectively, including the practices and habits of journalism. So ultimately, the game, while being a personally constructed portrait of Scott Morrison, also describes in some ways our role as enablers and maybe self-deceivers. Is that fair comment? Is that where you were heading with that? Absolutely. I think that a mistake was made following the 2019 election of explaining that result almost entirely in terms of rejection of Bill Shorten. Now, don't get me wrong, Labor made a lot of mistakes and um, uh, were rejected, but uh, I think we also chose Scott Morrison. We chose... The, the character and the messages that he transmitted to us. And I think we have to ask why. And I think often, often Australians don't like to think too hard about themselves or their culture. Uh, but I think it's important that we do that. I think it's important that we do that uh, because I think everybody should try to know themselves well. But I, I think it's uh, especially important that we do that at this point in time because I think there are a number of Australian habits which... Uh, have done fine, done us fine, or done some parts of the country fine for a long time, but won't necessarily serve us well into the future. You know, there there is a real Australian attitude of things will be all right because they've always been all right. Now, that's not true for all Australians, and, and that's a real mistake that, that people and politicians in particular need to be careful to avoid. Definitely not true for everyone. But it's not true for any of us in the, in the medium to long term either. You know, Peter, we are heading into a um, a concerning time. Uh, climate change being one part of it, changing global order being another part of it. Uh, climate change bringing with it other uh, challenges, like the increased risk of pandemics, for example, the increased intensification of the refugee crisis. Uh, this could be a particularly difficult few decades. And I don't think that we can afford to just assume everything will be all right if we continue to do nothing as it has been in the past. Uh, so, and, and I think Australians kid themselves a lot that they can continue to ignore politics to a very large extent. I don't think we can any longer. I think things are changing too quickly and too dramatically for us to switch off from politics. As I said at the top of this podcast, Sean, we're already effectively in the phony war phase of the campaign for the 2022 federal election. Morrison, as we've already seen, is attempting to lay down markers, slogans, narratives, wedge opportunities, doing lots of his photo ops in high vis and hard hats. Uh, you mentioned the gnocchi making, etc. How do you, from this early vantage point, anticipate his approach to campaigning on his record this time? What meta-narratives that, as you've described it in the book, float above the often conflicting contradictions that he uses as well? What meta-narratives will he deploy? And, I guess most importantly, how will Labor counter his campaigning and marketing skills? I think you alluded to this earlier. Albanese is not as in the same category of, of prolix as Kim Beasley, but he still hasn't mastered the ability to get things across clearly without lots and lots and lots of words. Of course, Scott Morrison can do that. How do you think Labor will counter Morrison's marketing during the campaign? Okay, I think Scott Morrison will have two things 
that he will try to do during this campaign. The first thing, I, I don't think people often appreciate this about marketing. One of the key skills in Scott Morrison's marketing, uh, it's not just getting a message across, it's narrowing the topic being discussed. Uh, it is shutting out other things. That's how you make a message consistent. You avoid discussing other things. And so I think Scott Morrison, first of all, will find a way to really narrow the topics of discussion at the next election. And probably he'll do what he did at the last election and try to focus in on the economy. Uh, so that's the first thing. It'll be about the economy. And then the second aspect is he will have this meta message, again, the same as at the last election, which is effectively Australia can go on as it is. We don't, we've had enough change already. Uh, we need to go back to the way things were. That, now, the, his, his version of that at the moment is, is freedom, is get politicians out of our lives. But what that really means at a higher level is let's go back to the way things were before the pandemic hit when politicians weren't in our lives so much. Uh, so in, in some ways, it's less about freedom and more about a return to the way things were. Uh, how does how does Labor counter that? I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's not my job to, to tell them. I, I think it is very difficult. And to some extent, uh, you know, the, these things are a question of, of national mentality and, and a political party can't necessarily budge those things. But I think if Labor's main attack on Scott Morrison, uh, and it seems to be that Morrison is all announcement, no substance, then Labor needs to show that it is the party of substance. A political attack works best when it both highlights your opponent's weakness and spotlights your own strength. And so, if Labor want to point to Scott Morrison's lack of substantiveness, then it needs to be a substantive alternative. And the only way to do that ultimately is with policy. So um, at some point, uh, and you would have to say fairly soon, Labor is going to have to show the genuine ways in which it is an alternative uh, to the Morrison government. Now, what that will also mean, because Morrison mostly stands for changing nothing, is Labor will have to make a case for change. Now. Uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be dramatic change, but it, it will have to make a case for change. So in some ways, after the turmoil of the last three years, really what we're seeing is a return to a very traditional Labor-Liberal contest uh, with Conservatives arguing that nothing much needs to shift and Labor having to make the case for change. I want to examine something you touched on earlier about lying from Scott Morrison and the deference of journalists shifting slightly. I don't know if you saw it, writer Brett Evans at Inside Story, the online magazine, talks about the cement of public opinion setting. Is the Morrison as a liar narrative, in your opinion, gaining traction and currency? Will it ultimately matter? And what of this ineffable trust factor in the coming campaign? I think that it is absolutely becoming a more widespread sense of Scott Morrison as somebody uh, who will say what needs to be said. So I think in some ways the liar thing is less important than the idea that he is simply saying what is politically convenient because even though Scott Morrison kept himself free from uh, from being held to clear beliefs for such a long time, there is still for a long time been a sense that he was a man of convictions. And I wrote this in this in this profile I wrote in 2018, that he was a, a conviction politician seemingly without any convictions. Uh, people really did believe that he was a man of conviction, but nobody could actually point what he was convinced of um, other than his, his, uh, his very obviously sincere religious belief. And so I think that is a real problem for him, the idea that he will say whatever needs to be said because it undercuts the idea that he's a man of conviction. And so I think that that is definitely starting to set in. Is it done and dusted? Definitely not. The dominant political fact over the last three years is still COVID. If Scott Morrison can mount the case that we got through COVID and the economy is recovering strongly, you know, that could be enough to get him over the line. That, that is the thing that most people will remember about politics over the last three years. Now, let's imagine after the election, what if Scott Morrison faces a hung parliament after the election? And it's not totally unlikely. Even has to deal with centre-right female independents, including Zali Stegall around climate change, Helen Haynes around a federal ICAC, some new independents, probably all females too, who might win one or two of those blue ribbon liberal seats. Does Morrison, in your opinion, with his penchant for dominance and 
aversity to being questioned and challenged by journalists, certainly, or colleagues even, have the temperament and indeed the statecraft skills to firstly, Sean, put together a minority government, as we saw with Gillard and Abbott, and then govern that way via daily negotiations and compromise. Is he the man for a minority government? I think he would do pretty badly at managing a minority government. I think uh, he would do what he often does in public life, which is, which is uh, bluster and, and half bully his way through. Though, on the other hand, you know he's pretty adept at not doing much. So perhaps perhaps that wouldn't be such a problem. I don't think there is anything he desperately wants to do. Um, whether he can put together that that government in the event of a hung parliament, I mean, look, yes, because the person who puts together a government in that scenario um, is going to convince the independents, mostly by convincing them that they, that they did effectively win the election. Uh, so if one side has a much greater claim than the other side to having won a majority of seats or a majority of the popular vote, then that is uh, likely to be a, a, the most important argument, followed closely by what do people in that in the independent seat, uh, who do they actually favour? Do they favour Labour or Liberal? Now, I'm not saying those facts are uh, the final word, but I think they're the most important factors. So I, I don't think that Scott Morrison's negotiating prowess will be the, the main factor in a hung parliament of whether he hangs on as prime minister. And my final question for this conversation, at least, Sean, something you just alluded to as well as context, legacy is usually mm. something a, a serious politician aspires to, leaving an indelible mark on the polity, on the society and on that nation's history. Does Morrison, in your view, after your character analysis, concern himself at all with his legacy? If so, what possible legacy from his prime ministership could there be? Great question. Before the 2019 election, uh, I wrote about the fact that Scott Morrison wasn't doing anything and about the fact that you know he was more likely to lose than not. Obviously, I was wrong about that. Uh, and that he was he was hurting himself not just by having no policy but by leaving no legacy. And look, three or four years later, uh, I can tell now I, I don't think he's bothered by that question at all. I, I really don't think he wants to leave behind himself a significant policy legacy. And just as COVID effectively saved him from the burden of having to come up with a policy agenda for the last three years to make it look like his government was doing something, I think it will probably also save him uh, at least for a few more years, of the of the personal burden of having to uh, think about a legacy. I think he will always consider himself the man who saved Australia from COVID. And I think that he will be quite happy to have that as his, his major political legacy. Sean, thank you for your book. Fascinating read. Very interesting read. And I note that you're getting a lot of kudos from people who think likewise. And thank you for being with us in The Zone. Thanks so much for having me. Our guest in the Transit Zone this time, Sean Kelly, regular newspaper and magazine columnist and author of The Game, A Portrait of Scott Morrison. It's published by Black Ink. By way of an update directly relevant to this discussion and Sean Kelly's book, The Game, just after we recorded this edition of the Transit Zone during question time in the federal parliament, Labor MP Fiona Phillips asked Scott Morrison about his late 2019 trip to Hawaii during the bushfires and why his offers had been deceptive about his absence and destination. In responding to that question, the Prime Minister overreached and attempted to turn the responsibility back on the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, claiming he knew where the PM was. After question time, the opposition leader, on indulgence, refuted the PM's version. Here's the audio of those exchanges. When my electorate was burning, the Prime Minister's office told journalists he was not on holiday in Hawaii. Why did the Prime Minister's office say that when it wasn't true? I can only speak to what I have said, Mr Speaker, and as the Leader of the Opposition will know, because I texted him from the plane when I was going on that leave and told him where I was going, and he was fully aware of where I was travelling with my family. Members on my left. Speaking question time today, the Prime Minister said that, to quote him, I texted him from the plane when I was going on that leave and told him where I was going. Mr Speaker, that is not true. 
On the 15th of December 2019 at 9.44pm, the Prime Minister did text me saying he was going on leave. He did not tell me where he was going. He said he was going with his family. I kept that text message confidential, as you do with private text messages between private phones. Yeah, on the Friday, he disclosed in an interview with 2GB uh, that uh, he had texted me and that was uh, the first time that that became public. But at no stage did he tell me where he was going. Just the Prime Minister on the on Where I was going was on leave, Mr. Speaker, and that was the import of the text Members on my left. sent to the leader of the opposition. Members on my he left. He knew I was taking leave, Mr. Speaker. I told him he was taking leave, and Mr. Speaker, he chose to politicise that and has done so the ever since. Later in the day, the Prime Minister was forced to recant to avoid his misleading of Parliament sticking. He used in that recanting this contorted clarification formulation. I want to confirm what the Leader of the Opposition said, that in the text I did not tell him the destination of where I was going with my family. I simply communicated to him that I was taking leave. When I was referring to he knew where I was going and was fully aware I was travelling with my family, what I meant was that we were going on leave together. I know I didn't tell him where we were going, because that is a private matter where members take leave. And I know I didn't tell him the destination, nor would I. Well, it's obvious that this is a fill-up for the Labor messaging around the trustworthiness of the Prime Minister, inevitably now a key theme of their election campaign. Albanese also took the opportunity to say he had not betrayed the confidential nature of the private text he received from Morrison, but the PM had, thereby tying this question time incident back to the President Macron of France, I don't think I know, accusation of Morrison lying about the submarines contract, and the apparent weaponised leaking by the Prime Minister's office to the media of Macron's confidential text to Morrison. The federal election campaign, whenever it is in 2022, will be a doozy. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address transitzonepod at gmail.com. We welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening and please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.